Welcome to We Are What We Buy with Dr. Michael Solomon. We'll take a deep dive to look at the patterns, habits, brands, and benefits that drive your customers to buy. The tips and concepts you'll hear on the program will have you standing head and shoulders above your competition. Now here's your host, Dr. Michael Solomon. Hello, everyone. Welcome to We Are What We Buy, and I'm Dr. Michael Solomon. Every week, we're diving into some aspect of consumer behavior, and this week's topic is something that affects everybody, and that is the impact of social media on our lives. So uh, I think you'd have to be living under a rock not to recognize how important social media is and for better or worse, the, the, all the ways that it's changed our, our lives. So uh, I've, we've got a lot to cover. This is a really complicated and fascinating topic. You may be one of those people who is not that involved in social media. I think we could probably find one or two out there somewhere. But uh, as of this year, we can say confidently that about 80% of the U.S. population is involved in social networking. That is, has a social networking Profile and, and and as you might suspect, that number is uh, is inching up every year. I I doubt it will ever reach a hundred because nothing ever does, but I'm sure it's going to get pretty close. So we're all involved in social media. Uh, many of us are involved in multiple platforms. The first platform we're going to deal with today is is a little something called Twitter. But just just to give you a sense of of how pervasive this platform is in politics and elsewhere. Um, According to some data that I found, uh, as of the first quarter of 2019, Twitter was averaging about 330 million monthly active users. And the total number of tweets that we send per day, about 500 million. Just let that number sink in, 500 million tweets sent per day. So Twitter is a very important platform. Uh, we know that it's actually male-dominated, which is interesting, uh, unlike something like, say, Pinterest. We know that about two-thirds of users are males. And we know that about 22% of U.S. adults use Twitter. So I'm really excited to introduce my first guest, who is coming to us from Twitter HQ. And he is Mike Bomwell, and he's been a digital marketer and entrepreneur for the last 10 years. And for the last five years, Mike's been fully invested in social media marketing at Twitter, where he works as a lead client account manager, and he consults with marketers to find their brand voice and engage their most leaned-in audiences on the platform. So, Mike, welcome to the show. Dr. Solomon, thank you for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. I suppose we should be tweeting our, our questions and answers, but we're going <laughs> to be a little old school and just talk about it, okay? Uh, exactly. So, you know, let's, uh, let's just start kind of generally. Uh, from where you sit, now you, you've been working uh, for Twitter for about five years, uh, you know an awful lot about how people are using Twitter and you know, of course, about how marketers use Twitter because that's your job is to connect with the marketers who want to connect with the people on Twitter. So uh, just, just generally, you know, what, from where you sit, how are people engaging in social media right now? What do you, what do you see? Uh, you know, are there any uh, red flags on the horizon, any advancements or developments that people should know about? It's a great question. Social media, you know, over the last couple of, couple, let's say, last 10 plus years has really infiltrated the phones and the, the mind space of consumers around the planet. This is nothing new, but it's sort of changed the way that consumers behave um, and engage. So over the last couple of years, it's become very apparent that users or consumers use social media as a way, as a, for a number of reasons. One, to consume news in a, in a live fashion, to connect with friends, um, and to engage with the latest fashion, trends, music, food, etc., uh, in, in a new type of way. Um, so 
Coming from my perspective, social media has really created this new sort of interesting opportunity for marketers to engage with their consumers. And the way that, in terms of behavior, the, the real focus is that, especially for social, social media, consumers don't want to be sold. They want to be part of the conversation. And I think that is the fundamental difference that we've seen over the course of the last 10 to 15 years from a marketing perspective, where it's no longer okay or acceptable or cool to just be sold or talked to. Um, consumers and users want to be part of that conversation. So that's, there's been a fundamental shift in how companies market to these consumers across all different types of platforms, right? Twitter is sort of unique. Um, it has its, its own unique set of skills, um, but really every single platform, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter, Snapchat, etc., they all have their own sort of niche and thing that they're really good at. And marketers should think about each of these platforms in that way, right? I think the wrong way to think about these platforms is to think about holistically social media as a bucket, um, but really think about these different platforms in a, in strategic ways because users just like you and me and everybody listening uses these platforms in a different manner so it's important to customize that experience for those consumers so you know twitter i think started out as uh in a sense like facebook did and just a way for everyday people to sort of uh communicate with each other um, obviously in a very abbreviated way but as you say, you know, it's, it's expanded o over the years. And obviously, we have, a, uh, we have someone in the White House right now who, who, for whom Twitter is the, the platform of choice. So, uh, you know, how, how are, are people using it now and how are businesses using it now? You made the great point that we don't want to be sold to. I talk about this a lot when I speak to groups. I say, look, people want, don't want to be marketed to. They want to be marketed with. And, and I think you said the same thing pretty much. So, you know, how, how is Twitter evolving so that it's turning into something more than just sending out these, these quick little sentences? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And the leader of the free world has chosen Twitter to be the platform to uh, disclose, you know, daily information or, or feedback or, or um, you know, specific points. But I think what makes Twitter different from the Facebooks, the Snapchats, the, the Pinterest, the Instagrams of the world is that really it's the number one platform for discovery, right? Consumers, users, fans, they all come to Twitter to discover content, discover what's happening in, in the news, in politics, in sports, you know, what happened uh, during Serena's last, last match, what happened um, during the Yankees, the Yankees game, uh, what are people talking about in terms of the latest battle um, in the WWE or, you know, uh, what's the latest fashion trend? They come to Twitter to discover what's happening and what's being discussed around the world, right? So that's the number one difference, um, I would say, between Twitter and the other platforms. Um, and it's that discovery sort of mindset, as we call it, that, that sort of makes Twitter consumers different, right? So from a marketing perspective, if you're a brand, Twitter consumers are more influential. So there's research that indicates that two thirds of Twitter consumers influence purchases of friends and family. So people come to Twitter tend to be more influential in their own social personal networks. Um, they tend to be more receptive. So actually, 79% of people on Twitter follow brands, right? So they come to Twitter to engage with their friends, engage with certain communities, but also to follow specific brands that they like, that they trust, that they're invested in. And then finally, um, Twitter tends to drive really positive results for marketers. So 53% um, consumers on Twitter are 53% more likely to be the first to buy a new product versus the average online population. So Consumers come to discover what's happening in the world, what's being discussed, and then they're actually uh, pretty influential when it comes um, to marketers and, and, and brands. So that's, when we think about Twitter and we think about, you know, the president using, using it and celebrities and politicians and heads of state, they come to Twitter because of the conversation. They come to the, uh, Twitter 
because they want to see what's being discussed and what's happening around the world today. Um, and we like to think of Twitter sort of as the pulse of what's happening around the, around the planet. Um, if something's happening in the world, it's being discussed on Twitter. And I think that's how marketers have to, have to come to the platform to understand that people are, are here to discover um, and then to be part of the conversation. So you, you've made two important points that on the surface are contradictory. And I know that they're not actually, but, but uh, one, one is what you said is that people don't want to be sold to on platforms like Twitter. And the other thing you said is that Twitter is a really important platform that sells people. So if you're a brand, obviously there are do's and don'ts here. I mean, there are ways to, uh, to establish a connection with Twitter users and there are ways, there are things to avoid. So can you talk, if I'm correct, can you talk a little bit about how do you walk that fine line? You know, you're, you're not selling to people yet. We know that, you know, Twitter is an important place for people to make purchase decisions. Right. It, it is. You do have to walk a fine line. But I think if there's one word that sticks out to me that I want to emphasize here today, it's authenticity. The reason that certain marketers are successful on the platform and can sell, even though it doesn't necessarily feel like a sell, is that they're authentic right? And some brands are fantastic at this. Some brands fall short. But the idea is that you want to be authentic because as a consumer of, you know, of social media in general, but also specifically on Twitter, con consumers and fans and users can feel when you're not being authentic. And I know that's difficult to do from a brand's perspective, um, but there are a number of brands who have done a very good job of this in sort of leveraging a conversation on the platform. Um, and as a result, highlighting their brand as part of that conversation. So one really cool example that I thought I'd bring up is, is Gatorade. So I'm sure you're all very familiar with Gatorade. Um, but at last year, there was this really interesting scenario where Serena Williams, um, she missed her daughter's first steps. And she didn't go to her coaches. She didn't go to her friends. What she did is she tweeted about her frustration. And what she tweeted was, she took her first steps, I was training, I missed and missed it, I cried. And what, what we saw as a result of that was amazing, right? Instantly, there was uh, an overwhelming outpouring of support from moms, dads, sons, daughters, people who were connected to her story. So this was a very real human moment. Um, and people, you know, she touched, not just because she's the greatest of all time, but because she's a mom. This human moment of her being a mom and being vulnerable and authentic on the platform um, really resonated on Twitter. And people started, like I mentioned, sort of tweeting at her uh, tons of support. Um, and it was, it was an amazing story. And as a result of this, um, Gatorade actually created this amazing campaign with Serena that's called Like a Mom, um, where they basically paid tribute to Serena Williams' fight back to, to be the top of the women's tennis 10 months after she gave birth. And it was this amazing uh, video, really authentic video about, you know, the fight of being a mom um, and how that corresponds with being, you know, a, an amazing superstar tennis player. And as a result, they became part of this conversation that was already organically happening on the platform. Um, and they weren't, resonating and they were actually discussed and trending on Twitter the next day as a result of it. And that's just one example of how you can take a real authentic moment from a person who is in the spotlight, you know, 24 hours a day. Um, but she had this real authentic human moment and they were able to partner with her to highlight this authenticity and this very simple notion of being a mom. So that, that's a really great example. Um, you know, I'm curious, is there, you know, was there any pushback? You know, did some people say, well, Gatorade is, for example, here, is capitalizing on something that they really don't have anything to do with. I mean, what does this drink have to do with a baby's first steps? They're kind of taking this over. They're exploiting it. Is, is there any pushback on that, or, or is everybody just positive about what they've done? <laughs> well, if a brand is ever 100% positive, the sentiment around the conversation 
around a particular brand, ever 100% positive, uh, you will have fooled me and anybody else that works at Twitter because there's no such thing as a hundred percent positivity. Um, as you can tell uh, at certain times being on the platform. However, the response was overwhelmingly positive. Um, she received responses from celebrities, some of her friends, and then just regular moms across the, across the world who understood what that feeling of missing out on your kids first steps felt like. Um, and, and as a result, Gatorade was applauded and celebrated for highlighting this very specific and authentic moment. And, and as a result, the, the overall sentiment was incredibly positive. So it was, yes, there's always going to be some sort of negative response, but that's sort of to be expected. And to be an effective marketer, you have to be able to understand, absorb those negative comments, but really highlight on what's working um, and engage your Twitter audience in a, an authentic human way. Okay, great. So you've given us a really quick case study about how to do it. It's all about authenticity and, you know, being real. And so, Mike, thanks so much for joining us and, uh, you know, helping us to stay real with Twitter. Uh, I appreciate your insights. Thanks for coming on the show. And we're back after a quick break. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Book international speaker and renowned author Dr. Michael Solomon for your event today. Michael's presentations reveal cutting-edge trends in advertising and marketing, branding, consumer behavior, and social media. He captivates audiences with the insights he unveils during his interactive keynotes and seminars. Michael has spoken to Fortune 500 companies, top advertising agencies, associations, and branches of government on five continents and has received rave reviews. Book Michael today at michaelsolomon.com. Marketers, Tear Down These Walls, Liberating the Postmodern Consumer by Dr. Michael Solomon is a revolutionary book that explores the psychology of the consumer in today's changing times. The book is packed with information and tools you need to create winning marketing strategies for a complex marketplace. Michael encourages readers to move out of the box, to think like contemporary consumers, and do things differently. This is a reader's favorite. Order today at Amazon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to We Are What We Buy. To reach Dr. Michael Solomon or his guest on today's program, please send an email to michael at michaelsolomon.com. Now back to We Are What We Buy. And welcome back to We Are What We Buy. I'm Dr. Michael Solomon, and this week we're doing a deep dive into one of the most important aspects of our lives these days, I think it's fair to say, and that is social media. And my next guest is definitely qualified to talk about that. Um, every now and then I allow myself the luxury of an, inviting one of my distinguished academic colleagues on to talk about what he or she's doing. And so... Today, I'm really, really excited to have my friend, Professor Robert Kozinets, who is a professor at the University of Southern California, and Rob is a renowned expert. He's a modest guy, but I can tell you he's a, very, he's a world-renowned expert on social media and consumer behavior. Um, he's done a lot of path-breaking work in the academic literature but he's also worked with many, many different companies, helping them to understand consumer behavior. So, Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Mike. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, the pleasure is, is all mine. And um, I, I want to jump right in and sure. just talk first generally about what you see going on in terms of mm. social media and communications. Uh, Sure. But generally, uh, you know, what, what's going on out there? I mean, this kind of, this world changes every day. What, what do you exactly. see going on right now? Oh, my goodness. Yes. So asking me what's new in the world of social media, how much time have we got? <laughs> I hope it's a few hours. Um, you know, I've been, I've been at this game for over 20 years, as you know, Mike. You were pretty much there from the start of my career. So I, uh, 
I started off in 1995 when there were 30 million people in total on the internet. And uh, at that time, uh, I was studying a group of people who were using it quite a bit. That was uh, Star Trek and media fans. And um, what I saw then was echoed in a lot of ways with what I see right now, which is people were using social media. We used to call it virtual communities at the time and chat rooms and all these things like news groups and the Usenet. Um, and uh, people were using online to connect around things that they felt passionate about. So the fans that I looked at were using social media uh, in order to form discussion groups to talk about particular uh, versions of Star Trek that they cared about. And so you, you also had, right from the beginning, uh, this opportunity to go on in a way that was anonymous or fairly anonymous and speak your piece. And boy, people did. So it got uh, aggressive. It got uh, conflictual. Uh, but people were using it for the same kinds of activities that they do in normal life, except that they could be behind a mask to some extent. And so that anonymity, I think it freed them up to get into all kinds of behavior that we, that we see now, cyberbullying, for example, or trolling. So that vast diversity of behaviors that we see you know, in our physical lives is, of course, being uh, reflected in our many ways of communicating and connecting with, with one another uh, online. So, yeah, and for what it's worth, you know, I think when I first met you, Rob, you were, I was envious because you were doing research on Star Trek conventions. Mm -hmm. uh, for what it's worth, today, when I ask my undergraduates about Star Trek, most of them don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, they need, a, they need a subscription to CBS All Access. Then. We've got, we've got <laughs> well, three, three new shows coming out. <laughs> I'm trying not to think about that. But, yeah, uh, right. but over, you know, over the years, and you, you use the term brand communities, you, you've, you've really dug very deeply into a lot of different kinds of brand communities. Mm -hmm. And you've, you've really been at the forefront of developing ways to, I, I'm not sure if I want to say quantify that, but at least to mm -hmm. systematize that so that we have a sense of what it is we're seeing with all of this discourse, as you say it, going on. So mm -hmm. uh, you developed a concept or a, 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 an approach called netnography early on that's been very widely used uh, by a lot of companies mm -hmm. and uh, as well as by academics and nonprofits. Can, can you give us a brief description, a layman's description of what it means to do a netnography and then maybe embed that in a concrete example, please? Sure, sure. So, uh, you know, netnography was this thing that I uh, kind of stumbled into from uh, looking at what was being done in order to understand all this discourse, all this discussion that was happening online. And of course, you know, it's not just text, it's also uh, videos uh, and um, images, photographs, avatars, things like that. So th there's a whole bunch of things to, to online uh, communication that are out there to study. So as I said, 20 years ago, I was studying Star Trek and, and a few other groups of fans online, and I saw that there was all this information, and it was um, you know, it was great information to inform my research, which was my, my dissertation research at the time. I thought, how do you study all this stuff? What do you, what do, you do with all these discussions? And so I looked into the, into the cultural studies literature, and there were actually some people who were, uh, who were doing uh, this kind of work before me. So they were calling their work uh, ethnographic. So um, for members of the audience that might not be familiar with this term, ethnography is a term that's used in anthropology. It basically means uh, writing about a culture. And so what these prior scholars had done was they had said, okay, we're going to take this more of a participant, more of an observational approach to what's happening online. So if there's a virtual community out there and they're discussing Star Wars, we'll join in with them. We'll collect those conversations. We'll download those conversations, just like an anthropology would sort of write down all the conversations in a room. It wasn't exact, but, but I thought, this this notion of ethnography uh, would be useful if we apply it to online and to, to internet-based stuff. So I started to call it uh, netnography. You come in with a bit of a focus, 
And then you start seeing where would be good sites to find information about that. And you look around, you narrow that down, you decide on just a few areas that you can go deep in, and then you spend some time either observing it in real time or scraping, downloading, whatever, large amounts of data, and then reading through all of it like a human being reads through a book. Read through it a couple of times, a few more, and then look for patterns in that. Understand the pattern and be able to analyze that. Now, that again, that in, can include visual information. It can include uh, videos. It can include sound files. It can include music. It can include all, all kinds of stuff. And all of that you'll be writing notes on and observe. Um, the way I would describe it and the way I would explain it for a typical audience member is uh, when you look at big data analysis, for instance, what big data analysis is, is it, it is a way of finding a lot of information online. And that's sort of the number one, by far the favorite technique of people like Facebook and Twitter uh, and most businesses out there get a lot of social media data and then they use big data analysis in order to understand it. So one of the things that big data analysis does with um, social media is you can look at the Twitter stream and find out if there's been a change in the last day in whether McDonald's has positive, negative, neutral sentiment. Has that, has that moved? So they, they use this for monitoring, for, for public relations kinds of, of monitoring purposes. Netnography is different from that. Netnography is not automatically trying to code something. It's not necessarily trying to reduce a conversation into uh, you know, some very, very specific categories like positive, negative, neutral. Netnography is there really to try and understand the substance uh, of conversations and the structure around them. So netnography will also move into the history of, of a particular uh, forum or place, or it'll move into um, personal histories of people who've been posting on it if, if they're relevant, or it might uh, move into interviews with people who are there, or we could give some of the members of um, a particular interesting social media group diaries and ask them to keep a, a digital diary. What netnography has evolved to be is it's a collection of qualitative research methods and approaches like interviews, like digital diaries, like using research web pages, like the investigative techniques of download and scrape and then analyze and code and interpret. All of those different things together in a toolbox that's called netnography now because it's, it's all about qualitative approaches to this data and understanding it. So as an example, which you asked for, um, some work that I recently did with a team of 11 other researchers from 10 other regions around the world. So I was, I was the, um, the head of the project who helped to recruit and manage people in a number of different regions. And we were working with a group called the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, which is a nonprofit out of Washington, D.C. And uh, Tobacco-Free Kids had uh, noticed that a number of countries, not the U.S., not the U.K., but a lot of other countries, Indonesia, for example, or Italy or Brazil, um, were um, places where there were social media uh, uh, ads, basically social media communications by seemingly sort of maybe normal people, but they were, they had cigarette packages featured in them uh, and branded backgrounds and hashtags that were all the same. So cigarettes in, in a, in an Instagram post, I mean, that happens, right? There's a lot of people who smoke and cigarettes are going to be in, in your photos. But if you have the same person posting you know, four different pictures, three days a week, regularly for a month. And in every picture, the lucky strike package is pointed towards you perfectly. And the warning label is invisible. As, as you know, as an observer and a researcher, you start to figure that there's something else going on here. Um, and so we went through a massive amount of uh, online feed in mostly in places like Instagram. And um, they, what we found was that there was just a lot of evidence that big tobacco companies were uh, recruiting and compensating people for doing social media feed to reach other young people. So uh, it's not illegal. Um, 
a, it's in a little bit of a gray area. The problem with it really is that social media is still a largely unregulated field. What we have is we have a field where um, you can have an 18-year-old who it's perfectly legal to have a company pay to advertise a product that can't be bought by people who are under 18 on their social media feed, but half or more of their social media feed might be young people. We don't know those numbers, actually. I'm speculating. But there is some number X of an 18-year-old social media feed or a 20-year-old social media feed or a 23-year-old social media feed. You know, a celebrity influencer who's 23 years old can, can advertise cigarettes and there's no limitations on who can see that ad because it's social media. So anyone can, can subscribe to this. So what we did, because this is netnography and because netnography is this toolbox of different techniques, we reached out to different influencers across these different uh, 11 countries and we tried to create a discussion with them. We started with a, you know, just a, a little bit of back and forth using social media direct messaging and so on. And then we invited them for an interview. And in some of those anonymous interviews, people shared the fact that they were in fact employed by the tobacco companies. And we even ended up uh, in one country uh, getting a copy of a contract. Um, and I'll, I'll, you know, I should say that was, that was hard work because a lot of them did not want to speak to us. Um, some of them, I think they, they were concerned that this was illegal. They felt that this was, uh, you know, in, in a, in a gray area. And so they kind of uh, resisted it, but eventually we did, we did prove the point uh, and this, uh, our research and the research of, of tobacco-free kids and some of the other people that they were working with it uh, became the basis of an FTC complaint that is uh, still being considered to, to try and uh, provide some structure, some regulation around how tobacco companies can advertise their goods. And this has become especially relevant and salient uh, in the recent times where uh, e-cigarettes have become such a, a, a health hazard uh, to people, but they were completely unregulated online. And so you had all kinds of young people uh, vaping and talking about vaping to other people using social media with really no walls, no limitations of any kind. So as an advertising medium, Mike, we, we, this is very, very loose. There's still this very, very open flow. And that's why we can see so much troublemaking happen with the dark web, with, you know, uh, a Bitcoin exchanges. You have all kinds of possibilities for uh, criminal behavior, uh, gray market behavior, and all of this stuff in between, like, uh, like tobacco advertising to young people. Right, so we can see that the, the Internet certainly can be a force for evil or a force for good. And, uh, you know, netnography certainly is a, is a helpful methodology to, to assist us in maybe getting a handle on that, although it's so complicated and elusive. But uh, this, is, this is amazing stuff, and uh, it's great to see that you're so dedicated to this and you've stuck with it for so many years, and, mm. and you're doing such great work with it. So o OCD, I guess. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> Whatever you want to call it, uh, uh, it's, it's great to know that you're out there doing it. So Thanks. So, Rob, thanks so much for joining me here, and uh, yeah, really? I really appreciate it, and keep fighting the good fight. Thanks. Thank, thank you very much, Mike. I appreciate it. This is We Are What We Buy. I'm Dr. Michael Solomon, and in a minute, we'll be back after the break to talk to my third guest, who's going to give you some practical tips about navigating social media. So, see you then. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Marketers, tear down these walls. Liberating the Postmodern Consumer by Dr. Michael Solomon is a revolutionary book that explores the psychology of the consumer in today's changing times. The book is packed with information and tools you need to create winning marketing strategies for a complex marketplace. Michael encourages readers to move out of the box, to think like contemporary consumers, and do things differently. This is a reader's favorite. Order today at Amazon.com. 
Book international speaker and renowned author Dr. Michael Solomon for your event today. Michael's presentations reveal cutting-edge trends in advertising and marketing, branding, consumer behavior, and social media. He captivates audiences with the insights he unveils during his interactive keynotes and seminars. Michael has spoken to Fortune 500 companies, top advertising agencies, associations, and branches of government on five continents, and has received rave reviews. Book Michael today at michaelsolomon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to We Are What We Buy. To reach Dr. Michael Solomon or his guest on today's program, please send an email to michael at michaelsolomon.com. Now back to We Are What We Buy. And welcome back, everyone, to We Are What We Buy. I'm Dr. Michael Solomon, and we're continuing our focus this week on the enormous impact of social media both on our lives as consumers and also for those of us who are trying to sell a product or service to other people. Obviously, social media is the place to be. So my next guest is going to help us to really do a deep dive on on how you get that done. And uh, her name is Andrea Val, and um, Andrea is a social media consultant and speaker And she is the co-author of a book called Facebook Marketing All-in-One for Dummies. And Andrea speaks and trains all over the world. She's appeared in top lists on entrepreneur.com and inc.com. And something I just learned about her today, she's also a stand-up comedian. So, uh, Andrea, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Michael. It's good to be here. Yeah, well, it's it's great to have you, and you know, you you, you wrote one of these dummies books, and I happen mm-hmm. to be one of those dummies, so we're, <laughs> so we're ready to go. You know? Awesome. Uh, so so you know, as I've told everyone, you're you're an expert on Facebook marketing, but you know, give us a quick commercial. <laughs> Tell us, you know, how do you do? What do you do in a typical day in terms of interacting with Facebook and clients and customers? Right, right. I spend all day on Facebook. It's one of the most distracting places to work on on the planet, I think. No, <laughs> no, I really am focused mostly these days in Facebook advertising. And so I help uh, businesses run Facebook ad campaigns. I train people on running Facebook and Instagram ad advertising. They're both on the same platform. And so that's really what I'm focused on, reaching and getting in front of the perfect customer for those businesses and brands. So there's lots of cool targeting that helps us do that on Facebook and Instagram, and, and that that helps uh, Facebook pay their bills. Yeah, well, they, they seem to have no trouble paying their bills, but uh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to lose any sleep over them. But, <laughs> but in terms of, you know, in terms of how Facebook functions as a sales platform, I mean, we obviously we see Facebook ads all the time, but, uh, but I think most people view it as a place to get updates on, uh, you know, I have students tell me that they didn't know their boyfriend or girlfriend broke up with them until they saw a change in their (laughs) status on Facebook, you know? Yeah. So it's kind of where we go to learn about lots of people that we don't know that we call friends. Um, but how does it work in terms of transactional stuff? Right. So typically what's happening is you're going off of Facebook onto a site that where people sell something. People can direct people like right to Amazon. You know, businesses can direct people to Amazon if their products are on Amazon or if you're selling a book on Amazon, for example. Uh, Or it could be happening right on your own website where someone goes to buy something. So typically that's what it is, is people where there's some sort of e-commerce available where people can purchase something right, right from a website. You know, relative to other platforms uh, like Twitter, yeah. uh, Pinterest, and so on. I mean, what are what are the pros and cons of Facebook? Yeah, that's a great question because a lot of these sites work a slightly differently. So, for example, Google Ads is based on what you're searching on right at that moment, whereas Facebook ads are based on 
uh, interests that you may have put in, some demographics that you might have put in. Uh, Facebook also learns a little bit about us as we interact on Facebook and, and do things like click on other websites and you can do what's called retargeting, which means that you're uh, showing your ad to people who have visited your website, for example, or interacted with your page or watched part of your video. So there is retargeting. And a lot of the social sites like like Pinterest and uh, Twitter and LinkedIn, for example, have some of those same capabilities. They might have some interest targeting. They Like on Twitter, you can also target the followers of someone else. We're, same on Facebook. You could target the followers of certain pages or, or interest keywords. And they also have some, LinkedIn more so, but Facebook also has this as uh, uh, targeting people by the job titles. And that's more relevant on LinkedIn so, since everyone puts a job title in there. Typically, Facebook people aren't necessarily putting their job titles in their profiles, uh, but some do. And you, so you can target sometimes by job. So the targeting really is based on um, things that you've, you've done on, with your Facebook profile. So if you are liking certain pages with your profile, if you're clicking around and, and clicking on things in, in, while logged into that profile, Facebook is tracking all of that information. So it's, you know, I always tell people it's a creepy, creepy place out there on the internet. People know, you know, we're being tracked all the time. And, you know, Facebook is then hoping to target better ads towards the people who are more likely to be interested in that product. And so it makes this targeting capability available to the marketers so that you can hopefully get your ad in front of the perfect people rather than just, you know, trying to get it in front of the entire world and hoping someone sees it. So the targeting is really beneficial to both the marketing and the marketer and the consumer but you do have to kind of be aware as a consumer that what you do while logged into Facebook is being tracked where, um, you know, things that you're liking, things that you're clicking on are all, you know, being gathered as data. Yeah, and so that actually uh, brings me to my next question beautifully because uh, you use the word retargeting right. and, um, you know, not everybody who's listening has bought a Facebook ad, but everybody has probably been targeted and retargeted where right. the same message is, you know, following you around. And right. so, For you know, sure. you might you might say that retargeting is a nice way to, to call stalking. Yes, exactly. Uh, you know, and there's that, you you use the word creepy. So, <laughs> you know, and then, and then we've got all these, you know, various scandals like with Cambridge Analytica right. and so on. I assume you weren't directly involved with those scandals. <laughs> I'll give you the right. benefit of the doubt. But, you know, is that is that affecting our your business or your activity? Are, are people yep. pushing back from Facebook? Oh, for sure. People are a little bit more wary of Facebook and the data that they're, they're um, you know, gathering out there. But the truth of the matter is Facebook and Instagram ads are still working incredibly well. They're one of the best places to advertise online. And it you know, oftentimes it's going to be cheaper than Google, cheaper than Twitter, cheaper than LinkedIn. Um, so, so because that's where most of the people are hanging out, really. It's still the biggest network out there. You know, I think YouTube ads are becoming a little bit more of an interesting player in, in all the social media, you know, in terms of social media advertising. But Facebook is still where it's at. Instagram, you know, uses that same platform. So, you know, it is, it does, it can feel creepy to people when they click over and then all of a sudden they see that ad again and again. But the truth of the matter is, we all know that buying decisions happen after someone sees something seven to 20 times, depending on what study you're looking at. You know, so there is something where people have to show their ad over and over in order to um, have people make that buying decision. So a retargeting ad is really can be really effective, it, you know, it might not be appropriate for some people, they might get annoyed by it, but the fact is it's still, it works, so that's why marketers are using them. But in terms of how that works, so, you know, you're, I mean, you've built up a, a, a great business by 
helping people to to do the most effective job they can with Facebook advertising right. and spending their their hard-earned money, et cetera. Right. But obviously, you don't you don't need a license to go in and, and do Facebook advertising. So I assume a lot of people just try to, you know, figure it out on their own uh, as opposed to relying on an expert like you. What are, what are the big mistakes that they make where they realize, you know, I should have called Andrea? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The big mistakes are that people sometimes aren't testing enough. They put up one ad and it doesn't perform the way they want and they say Facebook ads don't work. Well, oftentimes you need to test different things. You need to test different targeting. You need to test different images. Maybe it's different types of offers to really find that sweet, sweet spot for your audience. So not testing enough is, the I would say, the biggest mistake. And then also not knowing enough about the settings. Now, Facebook has become a little bit more complicated lately, and they have a lot of different steps to creating an ad. And if you are not setting that up and optimizing that well, you could be spending money in places that you don't realize. Like, for example, Facebook kind of hides this placement that that um, they suggest you have your ad on all placements is what they call it. And what that means is you're placing your ad on, on Instagram and places off of Facebook that they have um, partnered with and all different areas where your ad may not be optimized. So when you're doing that, you don't even realize you're actually also advertising on Instagram or off of Facebook and your audience might not be there. So you're wasting that, that money. Yeah. So when you say, you know, people don't test enough, I assume that part of that refers to maybe what we call A-B testing, where you have the ability to test different versions of the same ad, let's say, right? right? And see which one pulls better and so on. Yeah. 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 And, and, and how do I know, you know, other than, than ka-ching, you know, people are buying my product. How, How do I know that, that, you know, Andrea's campaign for me is, much better than I could have done for myself. Right, right. Yeah, that's the challenge. Sometimes you don't know, and it's a matter of kind of getting an idea of your benchmarks for you because there's lots of data on there on, you know, kind of average cost per click or average cost per lead, but it really can vary by industry, by, you know, the type of people you're targeting, things like the type of offer you have or the price point, things like that can really make that vary a lot. So it's about, Having some general benchmarks and and kind of just testing multiple things, usually I'm telling people to just watch one or two key metrics, like people worry about having to watch all the data in there. And you're really just looking for that. How much does it cost per link click, for example, to try and, you know, how cheap are my link clicks getting my traffic over to my site? You can also do things like track conversions and track purchases. And of course, then that's what you're going to be optimizing around. But, you know, you, you're only going to really know when you test multiple things. So let me, let me ask you kind of an off-the-wall question and, let, and uh, we'll see what's, I'm just curious what, uh, what you might be able to tell me about this. You know, the, so the Facebook profile, you know, our, everybody has a profile page and occasionally they'll tweak that to make it a little more interesting. But mm-hmm it's still somewhat of a kind of a static piece of real estate, um, you know, and, and thinking down the road about how Facebook can become more attractive to people to hook them even more than they are now. You know, it, one of the things that I, I think is important is to look at the kinds of acquisitions companies are making to give you a sense of where they think things are going. So mm-hmm. uh, one of the companies that I know Facebook bought a couple of years ago is the Oculus Rift company right. that makes uh, that makes goggles that allow you to have a virtual reality immersive experience. So right. Facebook actually owns that company. Right. Um, does that imply that we're going to see, uh, you know, a Facebook page that's going to become three-dimensional or are you seeing any changes in terms of how, for example, the ability to present ads might be affected as the technology gets even better? Yeah. Yeah. I think it'll be interesting to see what they do with that. I don't, you know, I think Facebook has always been concerned with keeping people on their site. They want to keep people there because if they have the audience, if they have the eyeballs, then they have the ad dollars. So I imagine it will be about keeping them in the experience somehow. I don't know how that's going to evolve. I know that there another 
evolution that they are looking at, a company they acquired was WhatsApp. And that's all about the personal conversations uh, between each other, the direct messages and, um, and things like that. So that is something they did publicly say that they're looking to develop is more of these personal one-on-one conversations rather than the, you know, one-to-many type of post you might have. So they're really looking to own the, the audience the eyeballs, the the length of time we're spending with them in multiple ways. So we'll see how it evolves. Yeah. So narrow casting instead of broadcasting. Right. Yeah. And that's why we need people like you to help us figure it out. So, uh, so you know, in that spirit, uh, Andrea has graciously offered to give away a free gift to listeners. And Andrea, I'll let you tell people what that is and how they can get it. Right. It's my top 10 blog posts. And these are my top most valuable posts that uh, get a lot of traffic, but also can help people with a variety of things. So in that, I talk about how to grow your Facebook page, how to use Facebook groups, how to uh, use the business manager. Also, I get into Facebook ads pixel and the Facebook advertising platform. So super valuable stuff, 94 pages. It's yours free at andreavall.com forward slash top 10. And you can just grab that free ebook. Wonderful. Thank you. And, uh, the next time I get retargeted, I'll know that you're behind it. So <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> great. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing these great thoughts with yeah. us. Great time. Thanks. Thanks, Michael. Well, that's our show for today. Please reach out to me at Michael at MichaelSolomon.com or go to my website, www.MichaelSolomon.com. Give me any comments, suggestions for future shows. Uh, Just share with me what's going on in your mind regarding consumer behavior. We'll see you next week for another deep dive into We Are What We Buy. Thank you for listening to We Are What We Buy. Please join your host, Dr. Michael Solomon, again next Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, have a winning week.